John Max became a comedy writer in the most roundabout way. He had quit law to become a political strategist. He won two huge campaigns, but then his luck turned on a dime and he lost 23 straight elections. It's, it's almost self-fulfilling that what happens is that when you are on a losing streak, no one good will hire you. And so they don't have much money. They can't win the campaign. They don't have the skills. And so then you rack up another loss. Max started writing jokes when he was on flights. One thing led to another, and Max became one of Jay Leno's most successful writers on The Tonight Show for 22 years. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is John Max. He's considered one of the greatest comedy writers of all time by the likes of Billy Crystal, Steve Martin, Chris Rock, and Martin Short, just to name a few. Max has written for 22 Academy Awards. He's written material for high-profile clients, including Helen Mirren, Michael Douglas, Hugh Jackman, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and others. The author of five books, Max also is a Democratic political consultant and a speechwriter for political candidates and even some U.S. presidents. John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. When you told me earlier that you had won two races followed by losing 23 races, my first thought was, wow, people really trust this guy. They keep hiring him even when he's consistently losing campaigns. How did you convince people to keep hiring you? Well, it was actually a little bit less of convincing people that I was really good and getting people who were really at the bottom of the barrel. It's, it's almost self-fulfilling that what happens is that when you are on a losing streak, no one good will hire you. And so uh, they don't have much money. They can't win the campaign. They don't have the skills. And so then you rack up another loss. So basically at that point, you're in a position where you have to somehow convince one person to take a chance on you. And generally, and at least for me, that worked out the same way it worked for uh, James Carville. We ended up working for a guy named Bob Casey. Uh, the governor, Bob Casey, had, had run for governor three times and lost. So basically, no one really wanted to work for him when he ran for a fourth time. No one would hire James Carville, who would never want to race. And no one was really interested in hiring a guy who lost 23 straight. So we were a perfect combination. So you uh, then ended up getting back on, on the horse and, and you started winning races. Uh, yeah, what happened was that after, uh, after Governor Casey won, after it was Bob Casey at the time, became Governor Casey in 86, what happened was uh, I started to get interest from media consultant firms. As opposed to just being a one-off and running a race and going to the next race, uh, the, one of the top two Democratic firms, a firm called Doken Shrum, uh, gave me a call and said they wanted to hire me to be an associate. So I moved to Washington, D.C., where I ended up doing TV ads, speeches, debate prep, and strategic advice for a number of races. When you're a consultant, you're actually working a number of races, signing a bunch, hoping most of them win in the primary, if not all, then you have them for the general election. So I went from state to state to state uh, doing ads, advice, debate prep, speeches for different races. I just want to go back to when you were on your losing streak. What was that like to lose campaign after campaign uh, in terms of your self-confidence and ego? And, and because those were high visibility losses, I'm sure it's not something you can hide, right, when you're losing a political campaign. No, it's, it's what you have to do is you still have to convince yourself to walk in the room like, like you're worth a million dollars when you're worth about 15 cents. 
and it's it's you know confidence to me is is something you project and that you know even in the worst of the races even when things were going bad i would go in there and i would walk and i'd say listen even though you have i wouldn't say it but even if canada had no money little chance i would say i know how to win this race i've got the way to do it let me tell you and why you should trust me it's because the one thing to get you ready to win a big race is having lost a race and I learned from losing is what I would tell them. So by the time I lost, I think, 23 Street, they must have thought I was the smartest consultant in political history. <laughs> so how did you go from there to becoming a comedy writer and on Jay Leno's show? When I was uh, growing up, I'd always been fascinated by two things. One was The Tonight Show and two was politics. And when I was in law school, I realized that, you know, you could basically go into the world of politics, which was a 390 year profession, or you could go into stand up comedy, and which is also about 300 nights a year. So I ended up basically choosing politics. The truth is, I don't think I've been a very good stand up, um, but I ended up choosing politics. But I always had that bug to write comedy. And then one day I read in the, uh, in the Washington Post, that was in the days when people actually read newspapers. Uh, I read in the post that uh, Jay Leno was coming to a, uh, a, a theater called Wolf Trap outside Washington, D.C. And I'm reading the article and it said that he bought jokes from freelancers. He had not yet been named to take over The Tonight Show. I ended up uh, calling NBC, getting someone in Jay's office who sent me a freelancer agreement. Now, what I didn't know was there was 900 freelancers. And if I would knew that, I probably wouldn't have sent in any jokes. But I thought, oh, they must think I'm really special. And so I signed the agreement and sent in jokes and I started sending them in. Jay was guest hosting one night a week and then later a whole week a month for Johnny Carson uh, before they named him to take over. He started using jokes and then he uh, called and said, hey, you want a job? Um, And I ended up, you know, thinking about it. And there I was, you know, with three young kids and I was traveling. I think that one year I think I had 270 flights and I just made the decision, well, let me try the comedy thing. But what I did is I told my partners in politics, I'll be back in 13 weeks because it's a 13 week contract and there was no guarantee that it would work. Well, I ended up staying with Jay for 22 years. <laughs> so you weren't very good at predicting things. I, I've, I've been completely wrong my entire life. Let me just say that. I, I, you know, the line I always use is I'd rather be an effector than a predictor. <laughs> Do you remember the first joke you sent to Jay Leno? Oh, yeah, it was, it, it was really stupid. Uh, when I say stupid, there's two types of stupid jokes. Stupid as in stupid funny, that's really a good joke. Or stupid as in it's really not a very good joke. This was the latter. Uh, it was, I think, July of 91. And there was a solar eclipse, total eclipse somewhere. And the joke went something like uh, there was a total solar eclipse today. That throws all the animals uh, way off. The chickens stopped clucking. The cows stopped mooing. The hookers come in on Times Square. And, it, and you know, I was watching that night and uh, watching TV, watching Jay, and all of a sudden I heard the joke. Yeah. Wow, he did a joke just like mine. And then, <laughs> then three days later, that big check for $50 came, which from where I'm sitting is still on the wall. Well, actually not the check. I actually wanted to frame the check until my wife told me that's really stupid. Cash the check. Frame, frame the, the, the second part to it, which I did. 
what was that like to get that first check from from Leno for something that you just it was like a throwaway thing for you at the time? Oh, it was a hobby. Yeah, it was it was it was it was someone who is a great opera not a great someone who's an opera singer who decides they want to go play baseball and end up getting a hit. Oh, that's really interesting. It's a hobby. But as time went on, he used more and more. And actually, he called twice. He called first in, uh, I think, January of 92. It was right after we had our third kid. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm putting together my staff when I take over for Johnny and May. Would you be interested? And my belief is you always say yes. Yes, I'm all, yes, you're interested. You can always work out the details later. And then when he called back a month later and offered the job, it was like, okay, let me figure out how I can do both. And for from February, or actually from May 92 until November, till the election, I did both my political clients and Leno. I went back and forth. I was LA to you know Columbus, Ohio, to New York, to South Carolina, to South Dakota, all over doing both, writing jokes on the way. Did you always know that you were destined to be a comedy writer? I mean, were you funny as a kid? Were your parents funny? What, what was your childhood like? Uh, it was my parents were lovely and the least funny people that ever lived. Um, just there's no other way about it. They are were not funny. They were just they were just normal parents. And I forget when I got the job with the Tonight Show and told my mom that I was going to go out with Jay Leno and, and work there for 13 weeks. She said, but you're not funny. I mean, my parents were were inadvertently funny, um, especially my mom. And she would say things that, that, that were double entendres, but she thought it was a single non-sexual entendre. And we all laugh hysterically. But, you know, with, with comedy and whatever, I just always love comedy. I love comics. I love listening to them. And that was, uh, I think, the drive. And just listening to the greats is what made me want to try to be funny. Now, you had this very uh, interesting nickname when you were young. Uh, you were called Ice Pick. What was that about? Yeah, that was that was a little bit different. My dad was always perpetually either going about to go bankrupt or losing a car. Uh, he had a business. He had a soda business, an ice business, and a, uh, a beer business. And what would happen is on the ice business, he had one of those ice machines, which they don't have anymore, where you would put in 75 cents in change, and it would spit out a 10-pound block of ice or 10-pound bag of, of crushed ice. And when I was eight years old, on the, and what would happen is got very busy in the weekends, you know, especially in the summer, people buying ice for their picnics, whatever. This was in Philly. They would, my parents would drop me off at eight in the morning outside the ice machine. My dad would do deliveries. My mother would handle the business. And I would be sitting there from 8 a.m. till about 5 p.m., just me, eight years old, in a really rough neighborhood in Philly. And, uh, to give change. So people would come up, they need change and I'd give it. Well, one time guy came up, robbed me, took the money. I was eight years old. So I came back and told my parents. And, uh, of course the first thing my dad did was get upset. Yes. How'd you lose the money? Like, what was I supposed to do? So I said, uh, you know, I said, well, this is, I'm eight years old. Basically, what am I supposed to do? And their solutions were to give me an ice pick to stab whoever robbed me in the leg <laughs> so that I could then run across. I can't make this up a four lane highway to a car wash across the street where my dad would give them a case of beer once a week to look out for me on Sundays in case I was running wildly with a bleeding felon chasing me. <laughs> so I was after that, I was ice picked Johnny for quite a while, even at the age of eight. 
I never had to use it, luckily. Never had to use it. I guess that began your comedy career. Yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting because what you do is when you're a kid put in a situation where you have to deal with with adults and a lot of them are drunk and you're eight and they're, you know, 45-year-old men generally in a rough neighborhood, you learn to use your wits. You learn to be able to talk your way into anything and out of anything. And I think if there's a way that that the, the genesis of where I learned to think funny or think fast came, it was probably in training that I don't think my parents ever anticipated. They just wanted me to give change. <laughs> so so you were on Leno's show for 22 years, and you were the only writer to stay with him for the entirety of his hosting career. Uh, there was two. There was, we started with eight writers at times went up to 14, but for 22 years, 4,610 shows, there were two guys who made it the whole way. So guy named John Romeo, who's uh, sh- from Chicago, and me from Philly. I'm sure Romeo's name was probably Ice Pick John back in Chicago, too. <laughs> and and you came to be known as the joke machine, right? I mean, you throw me some stats here. How many jokes did you write a day over 22 years? How many of them made it on the air? I think you set some major records. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. That there's some writers that will write 15 jokes in a day, and there'll be, you know, 12 will be awesome. That's not me. I, I, I deal in volume. And the only way I could really do it and that really did it because I maybe it's because I think fast, whatever. Maybe I don't put enough time into each joke. So I ended up writing about 100 jokes a day, plus what I would write for uh, bits and sketches. So we, we kind of figured it out going back that I wrote about 500,000 jokes over the 22 years. And they did a count. And I think there was 18,000 that got on which I, somebody told me, a couple of people said that's the all-time record. I mean, who? I guess if there's someone that probably has some app that can figure it out. But that means, you know, an optimist says, oh my God, you got 18,000 jokes on. A pessimist would say, that means 482,000 jokes got thrown away. And that's probably what drives you as a comedy writer. It's how do I get on? And every night, if I had four jokes on a night, it was a great night. Joe, Jay would do a monologue, 23 to 32 jokes. So I've had four jokes on a great night. Three, good night. Two, fair night. One, very depressed. None, I'd be suicidal. It'd be like, hide the dog when I get home. And it, it averaged out because I remember one Monday, I got 12 jokes on in a 22-joke monologue. And I think wow. over 13. And that was, that. I think, what they told me was the record. And I thought, I am pretty good. And the next three nights, I didn't get any on. So it just, it, it averages out. And and what people may not know is that there's a lot of competition to get your jokes on. I think I read in your book that Leno read uh, at least a thousand jokes a day. And so yours had to be good enough. And there are a bunch of writers, right? So you, yours had to be good enough to make it through that pile, through the day and on the air. Right. And and the one thing about Jay is it, it was there's some shows where it gets cutthroat. I know, you know, Saturday Night Live has a reputation for people fighting. Jay cultivated an atmosphere that was just creative. You just turn in the jokes and let him pick. No one ever fought for their jokes. No one ever went in and said, you didn't do my joke. And he never said he, he is, by the way, the nicest guy in the world. He never said to anyone, oh, you got to do better. It was just, just keep them coming. Keep them coming. I'll figure it out. And the the. In fact, the only thing he ever said that even was remotely step it up, put it on himself. Like one morning I came in and he said, I'm a little light today. As if it's his fault 
that the jokes that we've sent aren't good. <laughs> and and it, and it made you want to. No one ever had to be told to write more on that show. Uh, now, again, people wrote different amounts. Some wrote 20 or 30 a day. Some were like me, wrote a lot more. But it was, uh, you know, you had, like I said, when we started, we had eight writers. And I think we ended up, at one point, we had as many as 18. So it was pretty remarkable when you when you had one of those runs where you had three, four, five jokes, or even that day when you had 12 or 13. Yeah, you, I mean, like I said, you feel like you're on top of the world. And then you realize that the show is a monster that eats up material. That as good as it was on a Monday night, you still have to do your 100 jokes Tuesday. You know, you still have to write sketches. And you know as soon as it's done, whether that Tuesday night show is good or bad, you come back Wednesday. And it's five nights a week and it was 47 weeks a year. That's pretty insane. And, and you make it seem so easy. What was your workflow like, your, your formula? I guess you start with newspapers, right? First thing in the morning and reading all the stuff. Uh, I would start with a bottle of gin. I would drain it. Then I would go to the edibles. But on days when I didn't do that, I would. Uh, there wasn't edibles back then. It was old fashioned. It was old school. It was roll it up. Uh, but what I would do is this. On the way, I would get up, uh, lay in bed for just 10 minutes or so and just you know, think, okay, what are the stories from yesterday that can hold? Okay. Then I get in the car, I listen to the radio, get into the office. And then I would, I would, and it was completely arbitrary, but it was just my system lay out nine different topics, topics of the day. And I'd look through the newspapers. So today, if it were today, for example, we would say, okay, impeachment is a topic and Thanksgiving is a topic. And the fact that uh, the Cleveland Browns are good or bad is a topic. And the fact that, that uh, Frozen 2 opened. So I'd write those topics down. Then I would start to write jokes connecting the topics, seeing if they worked, uh, see if there was a, an association you could make. And, you know, you get 20 or 30 jokes out of that. Then I'd really start going into the newspapers. This was, again, the Internet was, when we started, was obviously just starting. Um, and I'd go to the newspapers. I'd read four or five. And, again, I'm not reading for depth. I'm, I'm reading for what's the, the, the stupid story. What's an interesting story? What's something that, that people will get that we can make fun of? And then later on, there was great websites like FARC and things like that. And there, were, there was the site aggregators where you could go and you could just look at the story quickly, see the headline and say, that's something that I can make fun of. And by all of a sudden, you know, you're done 100 jokes. And and what's interesting is how you connect to seemingly totally under, not seemingly, just totally unrelated topics. And then you give it a twist and that turns into a joke. Yeah. I mean, right now the, the would, you know, if you were to do something like that, because, you know, let's assume it's very cold. It's an LA show. It actually is very cold today here in LA. And you, you know, you'd start out by saying, you know, amazing day, freezing cold this morning, down to 32, you know, it was so cold that Rudy Giuliani and the special prosecutor huddled for warmth. You know, you could, you just, (laughs) Mix and they're they're called formula jokes, those, but they get you started so you can get to the smart jokes, the the bigger jokes, um, things like that. And 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 in addition to writing for the Jay Leno show, you've written uh, for twenty two Academy Awards, you've written for the Golden Globes, uh, you've written for the American Music Awards, uh, and you've written for comedy specials, for roasts, presidential debates, and and you've got different kind of frameworks for different genre, right, of each of those things. Sure. First of all, I start with this, that no client too small, no fee too large. So if you start with that premise and you just say yes to everything, it makes it easy. <laughs> uh, you know, I always say kind of like a hooker or a taxi driver, everyone gets to ride. 
But the but you know if you're writing, for example, for an award show like the Academy Awards, whereas Jay is a topical monologue, you know, and you're reacting off the news with the Oscars, you're, you're you know, or the Academy Awards, you're going to be writing material about the movies of the year, about the show itself, about the nominees. It's self-contained. Um, if you're writing for a comic, if you're writing for their stand-up act, again, that's then getting their voice. What is in their life? What is it they're communicating? And I call those, you do jokes, but you also have to think more thematically. Like if a comic has just gone through a divorce, what, let's talk about the divorce. What does it mean? How's it changed? How's it changed his or her life? So you really get the three different things. A top, for me, a topical monologue is one thing. An award show monologue is another. And then there is the, uh, you know, writing for a stand-up comic. With a lot of times, they'll come, obviously, many of them, with, I want to talk about X. And then you can feed jokes that fit that thematic they're already thinking about. You said in your book, Monologue, you know, there's, there's this big difference between like a late night show and the Oscars where, you know, with the late night show, you're trying out jokes on an untested audience before a few million people sitting on their couch. But with the Oscars, you've got, you know, tens of millions of people and you're trying out untested jokes on them. What kind of pressure does that put on you as the writer? Um, well, me, I just blame the other person who wrote it. Uh, so no pressure at all. But assuming <laughs> that I have some kind of <clears throat> a little bit of pride left. Um, the advantage of the Tonight Show, and that is that even if a joke, again, on you know, again, if you're a stand-up, you're taking your jokes out and testing them in the clubs, you know, twice a night, you know, four nights a week, maybe more over the course of months and a year. So you're tested. You know what's working. If you're a late-night host, again, you're doing it for the first time, but you have that great advantage is if it doesn't work, you got to do it again tomorrow night. The stress with the Oscars is, or any major award show is, it's one shot. You don't get to the next night, do the Academy Awards again. You do it and it's one shot. You're hired for that year. You don't have a long-term contract. So you really, I mean, the stress is and the pressure is on the host, but uh, you know, for a little bit for, for me as a writer, it's, you know, you want to, you always want to bring your A game, but I'll call it the difference between a marathon and a sprint. The Tonight Show is a marathon. The Academy Awards are a sprint. And you've also learned to structure monologues differently based on a U.S. versus international audience, like the time you went to Israel to help Jay Leno do his his act over there. Yeah, when you're, when you're, again, it, and that goes to the larger thing of know your audience. And this goes for whenever someone's in public, whenever someone's speaking, whether you are a comic, whether you are a CEO, whether you're giving a toast at a wedding or, you know, I always say for a bachelor party, I always tell the, 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 the best man, I said, whatever you think is funny is not that private story of you and the bachelor, you know, <laughs> about to get married in Vegas not only does no one know, whenever story somebody goes, well, you had to be there. Well, no, we're not there. You know, you have to know your audience. And so that's the first thing. So when, you know, we go to Israel, the jokes that Jay did had to be tailored to a, an audience that was, you know, probably 40% Israeli, probably 25% European and Russian and, and, and part American. So what's a universal? What are things that everyone can get? What you have to make sure that everyone knows the topic, because if you're in Israel and you do a joke about uh, Lindsay Lohan, you know, getting drunk the night before, 
they have no idea who Lindsay Lohan is, half the audience. But if you do a joke about a politician in Israel who got arrested and the joke is universal, and there's a great joke Jay did because there's been, I think, four or five Israeli politicians that have been arrested recently, uh, right for the show. And he said, when you ask an Israeli politician his cell number, it has a totally different meaning. And that applied everywhere. People in Israel knew it meant a particular person, but the Americans knew it meant just corrupt politician. So that's the advantage there. So know your audience is my number one bit of advice for some people. And you also learned something interesting about audience feedback and uh, the applause on these live uh, shows and and sort of the feedback that you get and how that relates to uh, the being, being able to predict the direction of polls during a political campaign, for instance. Yeah, it, it was interesting because um, I always said the Tonight Show audience was a nightly focus group of 400. This is the, the audience in the studio of 400, uh, I'll call real people. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the sense of mm-hmm. they weren't show business professionals. They weren't rich. They, you know, it was a diverse crowd, but they were all kind of middle income people who work for a living and here was their trip to LA and they're getting to see a TV show. So I would find that they were ahead of the polls. So I'll never forget. It was probably, oh geez, uh, where was it? It was probably most well, July, August of 2008. And I had been helping out uh, Barack Obama's campaign through my friend, David Axelrod. And I remember calling David one day and say, you know, when Jay starts a joke and he says Barack Obama community organizer, people start to laugh before he gets to the actual joke. That's in the setup. Said if they're laughing at you before the joke, there's a problem. And we started to see that over the next few weeks, Obama started to dip, not horrifically, but you know, from you know, two down, three down, four down. And then I'll never forget John McCain. I think I think it was September fifteenth, two thousand eight. He made that comment about how the economy, with this one, the economy was in horrible shape. He said, the economy is in fundamentally good shape. And people laughed out loud. And the next night when you said John McCain's name, they, before you even got it, Jade would just start and go, well, Senator John McCain, and people would start laughing. And I called Axe and I said, it's over. We've won. Don't worry. We're good. But the polls didn't reflect it for about a week. It's a, it takes a little time. People get it. Audiences get it. And I would say you can never convince an audience of something that they were not. We cannot convince people right now that Prince Andrew is a good husband and a good father and a good person. We cannot do that. No matter what you say, I don't care what he does for the rest of his life. We cannot convince him. He has become the joke. And that's the one thing about comedy. You want to be the setup in the joke. You don't want to be the punchline. And you said something really interesting in your book, which is that People, the reason stand-up comedy works uh, and people trust what they hear when somebody like Jay Leno says something is that there is this, it's true. You know, there's a, there's a truth behind it and they, they, the, the audience may not loudly say it, but they are thinking it. And when Jay Leno says it, it becomes something that they trust because they've already been thinking about it. Yeah. There's a couple of things. The first, the premise in the monologues in late night are always true. In other words, we're not making up the story. In other words, we, when we say that, 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 that Donald Trump said X, we're not making it up. So the premise is true. So right there, they're actually getting a little bit of factual news. But also the, the idea, and especially when you build up trust like Jay did over the years, people understand that it's there. And you know, there's an old saying, 
that country music is three chords in the truth. Well, to me, you know, jokes, you know, a good late night monologue joke is a true setup, a premise, a twist that's believable, and then the truth. Um, one of my friends on The Tonight Show for years, Wayne Klein, once said, all we ever do is rewrite the news. And that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Not the premise, but but the twist on it, the way to look at it. And you have this interesting way of describing it, which is the comma. If you see, hear somebody's name, comma, and that and they're and that defines them, then they're in real trouble. Yeah, it's you. You know, again, let's go back. This is this years before you were born because you're such a young person. But you know, D- Dan Quayle. You know, we think of as Dan Quayle, comma, stupid because he misspelled potato. You know, when you think of Bill Clinton. You know, unfortunately for many people, they don't think of best economy and peacetime, peace. What did did you hate more? The peace or the prosperity? You don't think of a president who did all he said in a good way. Unfortunately, you think, comma, affair. You know, when you think of Donald Trump, let's say that you're a Trump supporter, which clearly I am not, but you're not going to think Dow Jones 28,000. You're going to think Donald Trump impeachment query. So you're going to you, – you get that comma, and it's very hard to erase. So like I said, if you go to Prince Andrew now, it's not Prince Andrew, comma, member of royal family. It's Prince Andrew, Jeffrey Epstein. How do you know what topics to stay away from or how not to go too far? And even stories like Jeffrey Epstein, there's a lot of tragic consequences for women with those Me Too stories. But the Harvey Weinsteins and Jeffrey Epsteins of these world deserve to be skewered. How do you balance that? I, Ricky Gervais, who's brilliant, uh, and I'm, I'm a huge fan, says the problem today is that people confuse the subject of the joke with the target of the joke. If I'm doing a joke that has the words – with modern audiences, if I do a joke about Jeffrey Epstein or, or Prince Andrew or whatever, you know, people – you automatically go, ooh, he's talking about – no, we're about to hit the target of the joke. The target of the joke is the bad guy. Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, Prince Andrew, they're the bad guys and people confuse it. So which is my rule is, first of all, uh, my rule used to be if the joke's good, say it. Now, in a day of cancel culture and people who looking to be outraged, you sometimes I will tell a comic, look, this is a great joke. You laugh. I laugh. We know that five years ago, 10 years ago. It would, you know, this joke would would not get a work, but someone's going to be offended by it, incorrectly offended by it. So, is it worth it? And and that's that. To be honest, that's a problem because comedy is supposed to push boundaries. Comedy is supposed to break down barriers. Comedy is supposed to make you think. We're we're although in, we're in this age of political correctness where it's very very easy to offend someone very quickly and to have it go viral on social media and to even have yourself canceled so to speak in the halls of public opinion and I think it was Chris Rock uh, you mentioned in your book has said he doesn't want to speak on college campuses because young people are so sensitive and right. politically correct today and you've had a lot of comedians get in trouble over recent years uh, how wait, wait, how do you yeah I mean to me what I say is. We're not offending them. They're being offended. They are, the, the audiences today for, for, for many people are looking for the outrage. They're looking for the, the wait, he said the word race. He said, I mean, you know, Sarah Silverman did a joke, a famous joke about rape years ago. 
obviously she's a feminist and a strong woman and is not pro-rape. It was a joke. Do you know what I mean? Gilbert Gottfried is perhaps most famous, you know, because at the roast of Hugh Hefter in 2001, in November, he did a joke about a plane flying into the Empire State Building. And there was dead silence. And he rescued it by telling a joke called The Aristocrats, which is they even made a movie about the event and whatever. But, you know, today, unfortunately, you 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 have to know your audiences, which is why if you're a, a brilliant comic like a Chris Rock or maybe a Jerry Seinfeld, you don't play to certain audiences because they're not, they're not going to get the jokes and they're not, they're going to be offended and it's not worth it. To me, honestly, I say, let the marketplace dictate. If you're funny and you're telling good jokes, people will see you. And if your jokes are not funny and you're not making people laugh and people are not seeing you, then you're going to have to change your act. In addition to uh, writing comedy, you're also working as a political consultant, advising uh, even some on the current slate of Democratic presidential candidates. Uh, how do you prepare for something like that? Um, you know, it, it, I've always been a political junkie. Um, and so I've always followed the news. I actually think, in an interesting way, that being a comedy writer has made me a better analyst of the political situation and better able to give advice because I'm not locked in that beltway mentality. I'm not locked in that, that, you know, the echo chamber of Washington, D.C. and the beltway. I, as a comedy writer, you're always looking at something with the question of what's odd about this? What's wrong about this? How can we poke fun of this? How can we poke a hole in it? Um, and so I think it's actually made it better. There's actually one point I wanted to go back to about, and we'll get back to this in a second about what we talked about was in terms of, of, of the jokes and, and, and what can offend, you know, I just always tell people who are listening and, and whatever is that if you think it's a problem, don't say it. And, you know, and always remember that we don't want to punch. We don't want to make fun of victims. You would never have, you know, you, you always want to make it clear that we're making fun, not of Richard Jewell, which is what everyone did, in the Atlanta bombing in 1996, but we're making fun of the bungling of the FBI. You know, if this were happening today, you wouldn't be making fun of Monica Lewinsky. You would have all your jokes trained on Bill Clinton and the establishment and whatever. Uh, so again, the standards have changed in a, in a good way for the better. I just wish the pendulum would swing a little bit back so people would understand that the target of the joke is who we're really after, not the subject. What's it like working on current Democratic debates, given this huge slate of candidates up on stage? And you recently just got another one added to it, Michael Bloomberg. I mean, how do you even convey any kind of lasting punchline in, our, in your messaging with that kind of massive presence on stage with all these different people? It's tough. I mean, the, the, the process they designed is, 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 is silly, um, you know. This is just me, but instead of having a three-hour debate with 12 candidates, how about two hour and a half debates with six? That's just me. I don't know if the math works, but it seems to me that everyone would then get their chance to shine in the sun more than the ridiculousness of seeing 12 people on stage. I mean, it looks like a you – know, I, I was, I was going to use the word a clown car, but my Democratic friends would be upset. But it's ridiculous. This process could have been fixed very easily right up front. But they bought into it, and, and I think it makes it very hard. 
for some of the outstanding candidates out there to be heard. And, you know, I'm always one for new voices, diverse voices, voices that have not been heard before. And I think that they have been stifled by the debate process. And there, that's my 32nd political commercial right there. Go ahead. <laughs> If you, if you, uh, you know, you're looking at this, uh, this age, golden age for political satire, right? With especially with President Donald Trump and impeachment and all this stuff, and you've got this new generation of late night hosts. How uh, can you evaluate how they are each kind of approaching political satire in their monologues and in their interviews? Well, it's a lot different because when Johnny, we go back to Johnny Carson again, way before your time. But when Johnny Carson was there, he really didn't do political jokes. If he did, it was just an aside. Jay, you know, he came up or he took over in the day of the 24-hour news cycle and cable news. So there's a lot more stories. People are a lot more aware. But Democrats used to think Jay was a Republican and Jay and, and Republicans used to think he was a Democrat because he would poke fun at both sides. Somebody did a study and said he did 22,000 political jokes, 13,000 about Democrats and 9,000 about Republicans. And the reason, when you think about it, for his 22 years, a Democrat was president for 13 years and a Republican was president for nine. So it's almost like he did a thousand jokes a year based on the party. Well, not. It was mixed up all the time. And what you had then is I think people were more likely to watch the news and, they, and, it, and it was more – you would have – I'd rather watch our show and people would watch it because you wanted to see what the comedy was, not for their point of view politically. We know what Stephen Colbert's politics are. We know what Jimmy Kimmel's are. We know what Bill Maher's are. Now, Bill is, of course, interesting because he's a, a, a libertarian contrarian. Um, you know, but in Jimmy Kimmel, obviously, I, I'm a huge fan of Kimmel and I'm a huge fan of, of Bill. Um, you know, but you, if you're watching Samantha B, you're watching Stephen Colbert, they're really good at what they do. But why would you watch it if you were an independent or Republican? You're not watching a late night show. You're watching a political thing. So it's just totally different. One of the biggest game changers in this post, uh, you know, twenty four hour news cycle world is uh, of late night shows was you know John Stewart, um, and you talk in your book about how polls showed that people trusted Stewart even more than network news anchors, and that in general people trust the take of. Uh, a Jay Leno or a John Stewart uh, on the news more than the real news anchors, and that seems like such an indictment of the news business, but also a compliment to comedy writers like yourself. You know, why do you think there's been this shift uh, yeah. towards mistrust and cynicism of the news? Yeah, it's interesting. I would, uh, you know, again, the news was, of course, you know, it was, you know, there was three networks, and it was, you know, you, you watch your news at. It, you know, at night and you, you watch the anchor and, and that was that. And, and we would find sometimes they would make mistakes. What I think found is with the cynicism that came after September 11th, for whatever reason, the, the, you know, the nutty conspiracy theories that came out by, above that, John Stewart and Jay Leno were voices of, I'll call it reason. You turn to them, uh, especially Leno and Letterman after September 11th, people turn to them. When there's an earthquake, people, our ratings would go up in LA because people would want to see, is it okay? What's going on? And I think, however, now I would love to see a poll. Maybe there is one. I suspect that is before people didn't trust the news, but they trusted their late night hosts. I suspect they don't trust anybody now. 
um, which is, you know, why it would be so great to have, you know, have someone who was a bit more independent there, more of Stuart. You know, again, John got more political as the day went on. But in the early years or the early years of the first half, he was pretty much just poke fun of whoever's in charge. And that became a little more political as time went on. Looking back on your career, do you do you have any closing thoughts on on this world that you've been in for the past 22 years and the role that monologue has played in your life and stand-up comedy? Uh, yeah, I wish I had charged more. But my, <laughs> uh, and, and, but my other closing thought, uh, the true closing thought would be this, that all my life I wanted to, in a small way, affect change. And originally I thought I could do that through politics. One enters politics very idealistically, one always does, no matter what side you're on, you want to change the world for the better. You want to change it for your generation. And then at some point in my life, I realized I was getting a little bit cynical, that I was, maybe it was more of a business as much as I believed in certain candidates. Um, so I thought it was time to make a move. And maybe the way that I can affect change is in a world where we hear so many, so much bad news, where there's so much tension, maybe and again, this is, I'm not elevating me, I'm talking about comedy, that the ability or, or the willingness to try and make people laugh and knowing that, that maybe in my case, that maybe I gave someone in those 18,000 jokes at least eight laughs, if I could have done that, then I've affected change in that person's life for one day rather than perhaps changing the world like it originally hoped. And that's not a bad way to go out if that's, you know, if that comes to that. That's my, think, my closing thought. Well, thank you so much for joining me, John. It was my pleasure. Loved it. You're fantastic, and I'd love to do it again. John Max is one of the greatest comedy writers of our time. Over 22 years as a writer on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Max wrote 500,000 jokes, getting a record 18,000 on the air. He's also a political consultant, awards show writer, and has served on every Democratic presidential nominee prep team since 1996. Max has written five books, including his most recent, Monologue, What Makes America Laugh Before Bed. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.